Um, today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of God. <clears throat> the book of Genesis teaches us what's wrong with the world and what God's going to do to redeem this brokenness. And um, chapter one, we've been looking at God creating the world, God creating man. And towards the end of chapter one, he says uh, that let's, let's create man in our image. That's what he says. We are image bearers of God. And that's what it means when we talk about glorifying God. It means to be made, to be fashioned in the likeness of God, to bear his image. And in chapter 2, so we have image bearing as really a theme of the tail end of chapter 1. You go into chapter 2 and you see the first wedding. There's this connection, this deep connection that exists between God and his creation being made in his image, man, and marriage. This intimate relationship between man and woman. That's why marriage is so powerful in our lives. What's the purpose of it? There are four things we're going to learn today. If you were here, uh, even in the last maybe year and a half or so, we went through a seven or eight part series on marriage. Um, we're going to try to do all this in, in one session, okay? So we're going to look at the purpose, the practice, what poisons it, the power to do it. The purpose, the practice, what poisons it, and then where do you get the power then to live it out? That's <clears throat> four. First, we're going to look at the purpose of marriage. Marriage is a friendship. Marriage is a partnership. It's the deepest friendship. It's the deepest partnership. Marriage is companionship, the deepest, most intimate form of companionship. In verse 18, God says, I will make a helper for Adam. I will make a helper for this man. Verses 19 to 20, that word helper, God creates the whole world. He takes these animals to Adam. Adam's naming them. But all throughout, there is no suitable helper and so in verse 21 and 22, God takes one of the man's ribs and makes a woman. And in verse 23, he says, the man looks at this woman and he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's this oneness. That's what we're talking about. There's this oneness. It doesn't mean that the woman is weaker than the man. It doesn't mean that the woman is only part of the man. Um, it just means that there's oneness. There's this complementary oneness that exists, a commonness, a commonness of vision, a commonness of, of values, a commonness of uh, interests, a commonness of intimacy and love. And there's this great, intimate, 
complementary relationship that exists then between a man and his wife, between a woman and her spouse. It's why marriage is so intense. It's the most intense relationship. It's the most beautiful relationship. It's the most lasting friendship that you will ever experience. There's this oneness, which is, why, which is also why a lot of couples, once they get married, because they feel so complete, at least for a little while, once they get married, they check out. They completely check out. They check other relationships become so much less important. The church becomes less important. And we see an interesting phenomenon today where a lot of people, once they get married, they check out of the church. They just leave because they kind of found what they want. And it's very dangerous. Why? Because marriage is not meant to be the end. It's not meant to be a goalpost. It's meant to be a signpost. What's the purpose? You go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And I'm going to make them rule. I'm going to let them rule. They're vice kings. If God is the king, this man is going to be the vice kings. And so he creates male and female, and they rule over the earth. They subdue the earth. The purpose of creation is what? God created man to reflect his image, to imitate his nature. We call these things the communicable attributes of God. They're attributes that you can learn, that you can grow in, that you can actually acquire, that resembles the likeness of God himself. Attributes like love and wisdom and patience and justice and joy. If you feel a sense of justice, it's because God is a just God. If you feel a sense of love, it's because God is a loving God. If you want to be faithful to someone, it's because God is a faithful God. If you want to have joy, it's because God is a God of joy. You see, these all communicable attributes of God, and God created us in his likeness. We can imitate these attributes because, in a sense, to the degree that you love somebody, to the degree that you admire somebody, you become like that person. You see, that's how it works. Parents, you have children. They admire you. They love you. They want to become like you, right? Because we're designed that way. We become that which we love to the degree that we love them. That's what it means to imitate. That's what it means to bear someone's likeness, to reflect their image, to be their image bearer, to glorify. That's what it means. That's really the quick purpose, but think about what that means. Because God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. By nature, God himself is a community. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. That is the most intimate relationship, the most intimate friendship, the most intimate partnership, the most intimate companionship, oneness, the most intense, most beautiful, most lasting, everlasting community that's ever been known. And they create the world together. There's this joy in creating. Throughout the Bible, you see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit submitting to one another, loving one another, doting on each other. Each of the three persons of the Trinity, they're very different. That's what we call complementary. They're very different. They have different roles, unique roles, wholly unique persons of God, and yet they are perfectly one. They are in union, and together they are all sufficient. There's never any need. 
And so they didn't create the world because there was some deep need. There was some deep insecurity to create something to prove their worth. That's not why God created the world. He created it out of joy. God has such overflowing joy in the community of the Trinity that it extended and overflowed beyond himself. And that's what he did as he was working and as he was creating day after day. That's what he was doing. He was expanding his joyfulness, expanding his love to create. Not because there was some void in his life, not because there was some need to be fulfilled, but because there was joy and love overflowing. So when he says, let's create man in our image, what he's saying really is, let's expand that joy into our creation and have them bear our likeness. Let's expand this community of the Trinity outward. That's what he's saying. And day after day, you see it. God himself is community. So every day of creation, you see his joy. God creates. And the Bible says that everything that he made, one day after another, God saw that it was good. Each day, he saw that it was good. The next day, he saw what he made. It was good. How good? Verse 31, the tail end of chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The benediction, the good word. He's reflecting on the image of creation, man, He's reflecting on all that he had created, and it was very good. Look at this. Verse 18, God says, it is not good for what? For man to be alone. That's the first malediction in the Bible. This is paradise. Sin hasn't entered into the world. Adam had not yet sinned. Eve had not yet betrayed God. And yet, you see, the first malediction in paradise, it was not good for man to be alone. Why? Because Adam's aloneness, the fact that he was one by himself, it does not reflect the image of God. Alone, you cannot reflect the joy. You cannot reflect love. You cannot reflect doting on something. You cannot reflect submission to someone. You cannot reflect partnership, friendship, companionship, intimacy, oneness. You can't reflect those things. You can't reflect it in the fullest sense. And so because God by nature is community, we need to be in community. We need to worship together. We need to glorify God, not just individually. We live in such a westernized society because it is the western society, right? Everyone's out to pursue who they are, what they're made for, what they're designed to be, right? All of our books and movies are all about your own pursuit of self-discovery. And yet, the Bible calls us back in to say, wait, we are a community. You were designed as a people to reflect and bear the image of God to glorify God, to praise God together, to share in the beauty of God together, to experience the joy of God together. By the way, that, that's why we need to be intimately connected to church body. We don't just come to church to do things together. It's not just a place where you come and do outreach together. The very reason why we come to church is because as a community, we get to experience the oneness of being community to reflect and bear the image of God. We're designed to mature best in the context of community. That's why worship is so important. It's why community groups, at least in the context of our church, that's why they exist. You need life to give and to learn about how to grow in life in the context of community. 
No one is wholly sufficient. We weren't designed uh, to be sufficient by ourselves. We need to give life. We need to strengthen life through friendships in the church. The gospel enables the possibility of real friendships, lasting friendships. And the most intimate reflection of the beauty of this type of community, even through difficulties, is what? Even through your differences, is what? Marriage. Doesn't mean you have to be married. It doesn't mean, I know that some of us may have grown up in context where they say, oh, if you're not married, it's sinful. It, you don't ha- it doesn't say you have to be married. But to experience the beauty of marriage is not an end in itself, but a signpost to experience the oneness, the intimacy of, of the Godhead himself. Adam and Eve together are able to do something good that they can't ever do by themselves. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, constant submission to one another. There's no ego trip. No one's trying to fight for power. Remember the disciples? In all the Gospels, you have the disciples. As they get closer to Jesus, they start to fight about who gets to sit at his right side, who gets to be at the right hand. But here the Father, the Son, and Spirit, in perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am worthy best. You see that? The Son is submitting to the Father. The Father loves and glorifies the Son. The Son and the Spirit. Here, you see, perfect submission, enabling one another, complementing one another. So when God says, I will make a helper for Adam, the actual Hebrew word is not like a a maid for Adam. It's not a, a servant for Adam. It's the word enabler. I will make somebody who will actually enable Adam. And so in the Trinity, each person in the Trinity, in the Godhead, they're they're in joy and they're in love and their their role enables the other person to experience their fullest potential. That's the beauty of marriage. That's the purpose. Your spouse helps you to reflect and bear the image of God in a most special way so that you and they can experience and reach their fullest potential, what they were truly designed to be. Now, if you're single, this is why each of your friendships are important. This is why each of your relationships are important, because it is training grounds to look outside of yourself to learn to be a better image bearer. Let's face it. Every one of you in your friendships are a muted version of what you are in private. You are a repressed muted version in public among your friends. So if you're a bad friend, you're going to be a terrible spouse. If you're, if you're a selfish friend, you're going to be a more selfish spouse. You, will, you are in public and among your friends a muted version at best of what you are in private when you are experiencing the oneness, what is created and designed to reflect and bear the image of God. The type of spouse you will become, single friends, right? Your closest friends already know. That's why you need close friends. That's why you need to listen to your close friends. It's why you need to entrust yourself to your close friends. So you can't hide. You got to be in practice, even as a single person of image-bearing. Relationships are very important. That's the purpose. 
How do you practice it? What's the practice of image bearing in marriage? The premise of today's text, verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's happening at the end of this chapter? The end of chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, Adam meets Eve. God creates Eve. Adam meets Eve. And basically what he's saying is this. He says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What he's saying is this. Now I have found that person who is a part of me. I have found that person where if I am not with this person, I will never be complete, at least not on earth. Because I know this person, because I know you, I now know myself even better. And because now I know you, I know my full potential. I am enabled. I am empowered. I know who I am, what God created me for, because I know you. Fully, full disclosure. And so in verse 25, they're both naked. Adam and Eve are both naked. And there's no shame. There's a soulful oneness that takes the shame away from even the physical oneness. There's this nakedness of the soul when you meet your spouse who is your best friend, where you're totally open. It's why the Bible says that you should not practice physical nakedness until there's a soulful, committed nakedness that's already taken place through the signing of a covenant in marriage. Because what you're saying is, I'm opening my soul. I'm opening my finances, everything I have. I'm opening my health records and its problems. I'm opening my family and the in-laws. I'm opening all of my brokenness to you so that we are one in every way. You are taking on my joy. You are taking on my pain in every way. We are completely naked before each other. Nothing to hide. We can't hide. Oneness. Union. Verse 25, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united Oneness, union with his wife. That word united, so it's a very lost word in our society today. It's the word cleave. To cleave, it's a very technical term. It's a very covenantal term. It means to be glued to, to be attached in life, to be attached in a life-bound, love-bound, legally binding relationship so that if it ever breaks apart, it will be disastrous for you and disastrous for that other person. It's designed that way. That the pain emotionally will be disastrous, catastrophic. Financially, catastrophic. Physically even, destructive. In every way, it's designed to be that way. It's designed by God. And so when you see your spouse, you're saying, now that I know you, I know myself fuller. I know God fuller. And you enter into marriage through this public promise in front of witnesses. That's why we do this. Remember Sleepless in Seattle? It's one of my favorite sappy, I watch a lot of movies. It's one of my favorite sappy movies. What does Tom Hanks say in Sleepless in Seattle? This generation, you guys haven't seen Sleepless in Seattle. You should go watch it. Homework, okay? It was a million tiny little things that when, they add, when you added them all up, it meant that we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. It was like coming home only to no home I'd ever known. What is he saying? He's saying, I left home because I found a truer home. I left the only home I ever knew to go home to the only home I was meant to be a part of. 
the only home I was meant to live in, the only home I'm going to die in. And so when Adam first met Eve, what happens? He sings. In verse 23, it's a poem. Chapter 1 was written in a poetic fashion. Chapter 2 was written in prose. It's history, distinctly history. And then you get this one segment where Adam meets Eve, and he's singing. It's the first poem in the entire Bible that man has written, the first poem of all time. And so when Adam first meets Eve, he starts to burst out in song. He never knew that he had that in him because this woman was drawing it out of him. You see that? No one says, wait, so you want me to be attached to this person? You want me to actually love this person? No way. That's too constraining. It's too many rules, right? Only an immature person would ever say that. Oneness by nature is exclusive. You're bound to that person. You're sealed with a promise, right? It's the only home you've ever known. You're complete this way. You're in an earthly way. You are complete. You are one. And because you're one, you serve your spouse. You submit to your spouse. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, all the way in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, he starts out by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. And the author of Ephesians, he says, in marriage, you are guided by this vision of a radiant glory, a future glory of that person. Because that person has been created in the image of God. We talked about this all last week. That person bears the image of God. They are not lower than you in dignity. They are equal to you in dignity. They, have been bo- they bear the image of God, and you are guided by the vision of their radiant and future glory. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, that's why you cleanse them. That's why you feed them. You nurture them. You love them. You serve them. And if you do that, you will find through your service and labor and work that your love grows. It doesn't shrink. Your love grows. When we work, we say, I hate this job. The more you worked and the more you have to work, you hate it even more. But when you serve your spouse and you're in the practice of serving your spouse and you're in the practice of loving your spouse, this is not just for women. This is for men. God writes twice as much about men in Ephesians chapter 5 than it does to the women, right? Look at the word count. He's saying when you love your spouse, when you, fe- when you serve your spouse, when you feed your spouse, you nurture your spouse, you serve them, and there's no shame What a beautiful thing. If you do that, through that labor, your love will increase because your heart becomes bound up in your spouse. You are guided by the future maturity that they will have, the future glory and the growth that you will experience in them. And it means, what does that mean? When you bind yourself up, the more you're attached and you're bound up in them, if they're sick, you're sick. If they're experiencing joy, you are happy. There's joy. If they're hurt by something, you're hurt by that. If they're angered by something, you become angry. There's oneness. You see that? So we say you cleanse them. You address their flaws. You help them to see their flaws. When you clean, when you're cleaning yourself, when you're in the shower, you're naked, right? Because they're naked before you and because there's no shame, you can see their flaws. You can cleanse them. You can help them. So you cleanse them, you feed and nurture them, 
That means that you're bound up in them, right? The third thing that means there's priority in them. The Bible teaches that your marriage is more important than your job. I'm looking around, and I know that most or all of our husbands here are bound up in their work. I'm trying to see if I can say that about somebody. If I look around, it's somebody that's not true, where that's not true. Your work is what's got you. The Bible teaches your marriage, you should be feeding your marriage, but a lot of us are pouring into our jobs. You should be pouring with greater intensity and fervor into your marriage. Your marriage is more important than your career. Your marriage is more important than your ministry. Your marriage is more important than your children. Women, mothers, husbands, it's all about the kids, right? You're wrong. You should be pouring into your spouses far more than your children. How many of you are investing your spouse like that? It should be more important than anything. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Think about this. In ancient times, your family was all you had. Your father's name and your relationship with your family was all that you had. There was no internet back then. There were no cars back then. I don't even know if they had carriages back then. Okay? Where you lived and where you grew up, that's all you had. And yet God writes within the first couple chapters of the creation that man was designed to leave that behind, to be married to his spouse. That means your spouse is fundamental to your survival. They are the greatest shaping influence in your life. You can talk ministry all you want. If you are not a good spouse, it means nothing. That's what that means. You get me? That's what that means. Paul says marriage is the most powerful shaping influence in your life. It drives you, it shapes you even more than all the other things that influence you. It impacts you more than anything. It has to be a priority. If you don't nurture it, it's going to introduce all sorts of distortions into your marriage. You have to leave and you have to cleave. They're two separate actions. Now, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, that's a mystery. But he doesn't say, wow, I don't, I will ever get married. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's a mystery. But he says, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. That marriage, it's a mystery to Paul. It's an ama- he says, marriages on earth are so flawed and so broken. And yet he says, it's a mystery that they are a signpost to Jesus' relationship with his church, with his people. That marriage, your oneness, bears the image of Christ's relationship with his church. It's that most special channel. It's a mystery from God. It's a gift of God. It's a grace given to increase your power, increase your potential, increase each of your joy. You have to treat it with utmost priority. Now, I talk to people, and they always say, you know, they spent the entire weekend landscaping their home uh, Americans are obsessed with their lawns, you know. They're obsessed with taking care of their grass, right? Uh, and they love detailing their cars. They love working out. They love doing all this stuff with their children. Why do you do that? You do that because you value your car. You value your home. You value your lawn. You value your children. Marriage, you're supposed to invest in your marriage more than all those things. 
Oneness means priority. Lastly, oneness means speaking truth. You know, you take this bridge. The bridge has all these structural defects in it, but by looking at the bridge, you can't tell. On the outside, you can't tell. It's when this 18-wheeler drives over the bridge, and you're standing by the side and watching that, that load go by. You see the structure shaking. You see that it's got nuts and bolts loose. The 18-wheeler accentuates these defects because it strains the bridge. And every time you see a car go over that bridge, you hear its cracks. You hear pieces falling from the bridge. Now you see where the mistakes are. Now you see where the flaws are. Is it the truck's fault? Is it the 18-wheeler's fault for driving over the bridge? The car didn't create those fractures. The car reveals these fractures. You see that? When you're married, it's like that. Things that your friends have been trying to tell you all your life. Things that your family has been trying to tell you. Your parents have been trying to tell you this. Your siblings have been trying to tell you this all your life. They told you these things, that you are selfish, that you are arrogant, that you are driven, that you are angry. Friends, this is why we have to speak into one another. When we talk about community at Metro, community is one of the most abused words in this church. I love when people talk community, but it's an abused word. Because when we actually get community, you, you know, com- real community should make you squirm. Real community in your life should make you want to shrink. Real community should make you, save for the love of God compelling you, make you run for that door. That's how you know you've got community, okay? Friends, you have to speak into one another. You have to. It's not enough to have a sanitized version of the gospel here at worship, right? We all feel good. The sermon's supposed to make you feel good, right? It's not supposed to make you feel good. It's supposed to make you feel like crap, actually. And then you see the grace of God, and wow, that's good. That's beautiful, okay? So you you get the sanitized version of the gospel, and then you leave that store, and you you go have a great meal with your friends. You watch the game, right? Or you watch the game this past Thursday. And and the thing is, uh, we think, wow, community is great. That's not community. You could do that at a bar, guys, right? Put a couple beers in you. Put a couple whiskeys in you. You could do that not if you're a college student, right? Uh, But you can feel that way, right, at a bar. Friends, they can only say so much to one another. We're called to speak into each other, but we can only say so much because they are not legally bound to you. They are not legally, it's not a legally binding covenant, right? So a friend can make you squirm and you can distance yourself from that friend. And some of you have been doing that all your lives. And then you get married. And you can't do that with your spouse. Because a spouse literally has license to call you out. A spouse can say you are selfish. A spouse will cut through all of your self-justification. A spouse will cut through your reality distortion field and say you are proud, you are fearful, you are angry, you are anxious, you are not trusting God. Adam says, Eve, you are bone of my bone. You are part of me. You complete me. Without you, I am incomplete. Without your words, without your thoughts, without your advice, without your counsel, 
you are, I am nothing. I am incomplete at best. So a spouse, if you are selfish, a spouse will teach you to be unselfish. If you are fearful, a spouse will teach you to have courage. If you are arrogant, a spouse will teach you what humility is. A spouse will point you to Christ to address your selfishness and your fears and teach you what it means to be humble and forgiving and trusting. If you don't do that, <clears throat> if you don't do that, um, no one's going to arrest you. No one, you're not going to go to jail. But little by little, the corrosion of sin in your life will start to spread like a cancer. At first, you can't see it. You yourself can't see it until it's too late. It has taken over your entire soul and will burst you into hell. You see that? A lot of us say, oh, but I'm not used to addressing my spouse's flaws. Things are really good right now. I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to ruffle feathers. Look, sacrificing, you are sacrificing that person's future glory. And that's what you were called to do, right? To bring them to a radiant and future glory. And you are sacrificing that future glory for your present peace. Is that a worthy, is that even logically, intellectually, does that make sense to you? And if you're being addressed right now, look, oftentimes we think, you know, that the biggest problem in our marriage is the conflict that we have with our spouse, but it's really not. Because conflicts in your marriage exist to really bring you into conflict with yourself. You see yourself. You see the need to correct yourself. A lot of times you don't know, but you know. You see? And your spouse knows, right? Your spouse is there to help you see, right? Now, if you're dating, if you're looking to date, uh, then you need to practice this now among your friends. You got to do this by listening to your friends. If your friends are telling you selfish, you're selfish, you're selfish, okay? If more than one friend is telling you you're selfish, you are selfish. If more than one person is telling you, man, you are self-centered, you are self-absorbed, you know why? It's because you're self-centered and self-absorbed. Your friends may tell you, bro, you are boring, that's so why I don't like hanging out with you. It's not fun to hear that, right? I don't know how to correct it because I'm like a fun person. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how you would correct that, but your friends are there to help you, right? I hope they're not doing that to destroy you. If they're really your friends, they're to build you. They're doing it because you know their love is palpable. Their grief, their suffering is palpable. You see that? And yet... You know, we see how loving, wholly committed, devoted, assuring our spouses, even though they will call you out, they're there. They're there with you for life. Marriage helps you do away with these things in your life, the stuff in your life, by bringing it to the forefront. You can't escape it. You can't es now you can't escape looking at yourself. Uh, before, you always put it aside. Now you have to address it. If you want peace in your marriage, you have to address it. That's why, that's why they're there. It's God's gift to you. So you can't run away. It's easy to run from God. In many ways, a lot of us have been running from God just by doing well in the church, 
You know, that's how we've been, just being very religiously upright. And you haven't really dealt with the pride and the arrogance, you know, the self-righteousness, the works-orientedness in our lives. What poisons image-bearing? Number three, we're going to have to we're gonna speed up here. Um, I'm just going to say it this way. When you tell your spouse that you have certain preferences and you, want, you are annoyed by them and all you want to do is to conform them, build them in the image of your likeness, what you want. You see, that's what poisons uh, a marriage. That's what poisons image-bearing. Rather than pointing them to God, rather than pointing them to Christ, who is the sun, we are merely moons revolving around the great sun. Correct? That's what we said last week. Right? So if you are basically not nurturing, not feeding, not treating as priority, not cleansing, not practicing oneness by addressing their flaws, calling them out, right, in love, what's going to poison a marriage? Your selfishness, your sin. What is sin? Anything that's going to threaten the design. Sin is anything that's going to threaten the design of your heart and your mind and your soul and your body and your will. Anything that's going to turn you away from worshiping God, revolving and reflecting the image of God into revolving and reflecting the image of other things. And so if you were were a demanding spouse, but so demanding that your spouse is being drawn away from reflecting the image and character of God and now working to please you, working to earn your favor, it could be materially, it could be physically, it could be a lot of things emotionally, because I have needs, don't I have rights? You have rights to the degree that you've been designed a particular way. Even you will start to break down, you see? Your selfishness does not only cause the breakdown of your spouse, but causes the breakdown of your own character, your own self. You see that? Sin is anything that gets in the way of you bearing the image of God and enabling or pushing your spouse to look to something else and to bear the image and the likeness of something else that they love, to lead them towards other loves. That's what it is. Uh, A lot of times, there's a gravitational pull that develops between a man and a woman in marriage, and after a while, it blinds you. That gravitational pull blinds you, so you have a hard time. um, Either it leads you to not seeing the flaws in your relationship or in your spouse, but it also calls you to be deaf so that you don't hear the issues that need to be addressed in your marriage or in yourself, right? Um, and that could be coming from all different angles. <clears throat> um, what happens is that you start, it starts to ruin your design. And you start to be recreated in the image of one another. You're just revolving around each other. That's why we have so many couples checking out of the church. That's why we have that. They have other things that they're pursuing together. You see that? You're violating your own purpose. And when you do that, that's like going to a doctor. The doctor tells you you're designed a certain way and you should cut certain things out of your life because it's going to kill you. And yet you're like, well, what right do you have to tell me to tell me I, I, I should stop doing this? Your doctor is just trying to point you to how you were designed. And by you violating that, it will ruin you. That's what your doctor is telling you. You have a car. Your car has a wonderful engine. And you say, oh, my car is beautiful. So I'm never going to give it an oil change, right? Is that good logic? I'm never going to feed it. I'm never going to put in good gas. I'm, not, I'm going to put in sugar instead. That's what I'm going to do, right? I can do whatever I want. Who are you to tell me uh, as an expert what I should, how I should treat my car? You're so restrictive, so many rules, so many regulations. 
Is that how we treat our cars? But how about the treatment of your soul? You see, sin poisons image bearing. Sin is letting other things get in the way of you or your spouse bearing the image of God. So what's the power to break out of this? Adam and Eve, they eventually be, they become broken images of God because sin poisons them. They become broken reflections of God. And so the Apostle Paul says, you can't look to Adam because Adam is a broken image. So you have to look to a greater Adam, a truer Adam, the ultimate image of God. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God. What that means is that if marriage is designed with a vision of the radiance of God, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ is that radiance. He is the Shekinah glory of God. And we said that that, when, when we call Jesus the glory, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of God, that's when the Israelites were being led out of Egypt into the wilderness, into the desert. It was a great journey. God led them with a radiant cloud, a radiant fire. That represented his radiance and his glory. It also represented his power. That's why it was a fire. It represented his wisdom and love. And Jesus Christ says, I am that fire. I am that radiance. I and the Father are one, he says. God the Father looks down at his son as his son is being baptized. And he says what? There's my son. He's doting on his son. There is my son, my beautiful son, whom I love. He says, listen to him. So the father submits to the son. The son submits to the father. There's this wonderful, beautiful dance that's taking place. Tim Keller, my favorite preacher, says it's like a dance, a dance of the Trinity. At Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is praying to the father, and what does he say? It's a very different tone. He says, take this cup from me. The cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath for the penalty of our sins. At that moment, he's seeing everything he's about to endure, everything he will suffer. God himself will depart from him. And he says, if it's possible, take that away from me. Take this cup from me. But then he says, not my will, yours be done. In other words, what? To the point of death, I am committed to you. I am submissive to you. I trust you. I trust you. Even if it's going to cost my life. Look at the vulnerability of Christ the nakedness of Christ. He was stripped naked on the cross. Look at the commitment of Christ. Look at the submission of Christ. The love of Jesus, the dance of the Trinity. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left the Father to be united to his wife, the church. We are the church. We are his bride. Jesus Christ left home. Jesus Christ left the Father to present us a radiant church so we could bear the likeness of that fire radiance of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, by coming down here, by committing to you, submitting, making myself vulnerable, so vulnerable, he was born in a manger as a baby, killable, destroyable, 
And on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins. We were broken, so he had to be broken. We were diseased in sin, so he was diseased in sin. We were dead, so he had to die. You see that? And so on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you have really left me. I have been stripped away from a father. That is catastrophic for me. This marriage is being ripped apart, torn apart. It is catastrophic for me, he says. And so there was darkness, and there was an earthquake, and the holy temple curtain tore in two. He was forsaken, treated like an alien, isolated. And what he's saying is, I've left my father. I've left my father's name. I've lost my identity. It's everything to me. I've lost access so that why I could be one with my bride. The Bible says he became sin so that in him, reconciled to him, united to him, we would become the righteousness of God. When you see the high king leaving the father's throne above his house to be united with us, where will you get the power? When your marriage is at its worst, where will you get the power to remain but to gaze upon the beauty of the one who left his father's throne to be united to you? And that power lives in you. There is your power to be able to commit to your wife. There is your power to commit to your husband when they are at their worst. That's what it means. And because he lives, we live. There is power. There is the radiance. There is the image. There is the vision of marriage. Jesus, when you want to look at what kind of, how am I supposed to live? Look at Christ's love for his church and imitate that. Look at Christ's sacrifice for his wife. Imitate that. Look at Christ's love for his wife. Imitate that. What person would not want to surrender and submit in that kind of relationship? We would all want that. We all need that. You get that? Two, what that means is there's hope, there's love, there's a power to point each other to that radiance. You have the power. That's number one. Number two, there's hope in pointing to that, to that radiance, there is a purpose. You will now bear the image of God. You, that means that you can forgive one another. That means you can love and serve one another. You, you can be humble. You can demonstrate grace. You can have peace. Last week, we closed with 2 Corinthians 3. We, who with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory. It happens. Marriage is powerful. Powerful. My prayer is that we have a lot of... Metro's blessed because uh, a lot of churches, they have an overwhelming number of college students or an overwhelming number of adults uh, marry couples with children. So there's not a lot of mobile people to be able to serve in the church. And yet, here at Metro, we're blessed with a great ratio of young and older married couples and singles, there's a lot of potential here. Will you be able to practice what it means in every level of relationship that you have? That intimacy, vulnerability, and love that you've experienced from God on the cross through Jesus. Will you be able to practice that, demonstrate that practically to one another here? So that church is not a place where you just come and just complain. The church is not a place where you just come and just become a worse version of who you are at work when it should be a glorious version of who you were designed to be. Will you do that by demonstrating that to one another in your community groups? Will you do that by demonstrating that to one another 
You can do that in the context of an Eagles game. You can do that in the context of living by each other, serving one another. You can do that most intimately in the context of marriage. And all of you who have children, all the more, what a great model of surrender and sacrifice to teach that and impart that on your children. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray.